thanks, Brendan, for uh, for joining us. Um, there's a little bit of an imp impromptu thing, but it's kind of a very news driven, very news driven uh, type of thing. It's um, basically, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll let you take it from here because you're the one with the most context. But uh, you know, there's been a recent drama around the FCC kind of not funding a Starlink related program to get Starlink units to rural Americans who need internet service. So tell us, tell us all about the drama. I have to say, I'm, I've been a little bit removed from the drama, even though I myself. I'm actually a rural resident with a Starlink <laughs> unit in on my deck uh, in, the, de in yep. the the Reno Highlands that that part of the world that you know about. So yeah, yep. tell us tell us what's going on because I think you have some theories as to why this is happening. Yeah, well, thanks so much. I mean, happy to to, to get into this. I, I I think you're sort of uniquely positioned uh, as a frequent tweeter about uh, your Starlink use and sort of understanding of a uh, some of the broader politics here as well. Um, you know, stepping back, I'll, I'll say this, you know, there's obviously, particularly with COVID-19, been an unprecedented uh, effort at the federal government level to what we call end the digital divide once and for all. And um, by some estimates, it would cost about $98 billion to end the digital divide, get high-speed internet service to every American. And by my count, Congress has now appropriated something in the uh, uh, in the magnitude of uh, $800 billion uh, that is available for broadband infrastructure could be used for other sort of infrastructure efforts as well. And I think one of the key sort of pieces about um, Starlink, which is so interesting, is, is the ability to serve some of the, the costliest, hardest to reach parts of this country for, you know, relatively pennies on the dollar. And, you know, long story short, back in 2020, we held what's called an auction for uh, the award of infrastructure dollars to serve rural communities. And one of the big winners of that auction uh, was Elon Musk's Starlink. And we awarded them uh, provisionally, I guess you could call it back in 2020, about $885 million to serve, you know, hundreds of thousands of families, businesses, you know, homes, that have absolutely no internet service at all today. And they weren't you know, required to start doing that service for at least another three years from now had we move forward with it. Uh, and rather abruptly from my perspective, the FCC at the staff level, so FCC leadership directing the staff uh, pulled the plug on that infrastructure award to Starlink that, that we had provisionally given them back in 2020. And it was a very odd, decision from my perspective as a commissioner and, and, and the, the reasons that the agency itself has offered up for taking this rather extreme step um, simply don't add up. So, for instance, one of the things the FCC said at the bureau level very shortly was, well, this is sort of a risky technology. It's still sort of nascent in early days, and we don't know if we want to rely on it um, to be delivering high-speed internet service to rural Americans. And, you know, the reality is anything further further from that. Obviously, you know, you as a user of it, but even globally in Ukraine right now, the, the government of Ukraine is relying very heavily uh, on, on Starlink. Starlink is hitting uh, speeds above the speeds that the FCC had asked them to hit in other countries where they're, you know, up and running and their speeds have increased significantly year over year. And while on the one hand, the FCC is looking skeptically at Starlink, uh, on the other hand, you have other components of the federal government that are expressing extreme confidence in Starlink, including the Air Force that just inked a uh, $2 million deal uh, with Starlink to provide internet service to military bases. Another reason the FCC offered up is it said, well, the price point is too high because at least commercially right now, the, the dish you need for Starlink is $600. And what's most interesting to me about that particular point is when I first learned about this FCC decision, I was in uh, Napakiak, Alaska which is a flight from Anchorage to a city called Bethel. And then it's about a 30 minute uh, boat ride um, up uh, the, the YK Delta, the Kaskaskum River to get to Napakia. It's a town completely off the road system, uh, about 500 people. And I was talking with uh, a mom that lives there, Rachel, and she was telling me that they pay hundreds of dollars every single month for two, three, four, five megabit per second internet service. Um, and at the same time, you know, you got the FCC saying, well, we don't want to fund Starlink because it's a $600 dish. 
Um, and, you know, the speeds are at least, you know, what they're promising is 100 over 20. And, um, you know, it's just amazing to me that, that we can that we can sort of sit here in D.C. and sort of second guess this really interesting technology, you know, and criticize, criticize a price point while Americans are out there paying, you know, far more than that. Uh, for, for, for speeds that are a fraction of it. So it was an odd decision to me. You know, I don't know if, you know, there's folks back at the White House that are sort of, you know, happy from a political perspective about this. I don't know that, you know, the FC Bureau staff engages in that type of politics, but it is sort of odd at the end of the day. Yeah, I've, um, you know, in my capacity as a, a, a D.C. swamp tourist, I guess, via the um the Lincoln network, right? Like I've, I've been involved in some of these conversations around the broadband thing. Cause it's, it's a super testy thing. And it's, it's weird. Cause obviously it, it should matter from the like West coast text point of view. Cause, cause obviously those are potential new users for, for West coast text technology, but it seems to be mostly a political conversation. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the objections to the, to the Starlink plan that I've heard are, are based on a cost basis. But as you said, right. It's like, if you actually, if you actually factor out the per user cost of getting broadband, some of the more the most rural points, Starlink actually seems cheap by comparison, and, and it's hard to call it an experimental technology when, as you said, it actually works so well. I mean, speaking of Ukraine, one of the things I so I, I spent a I spent a few days in the other part of the war on, in in western Ukraine, and one of the things I lugged with me was actually my Starlink from Nevada, as a matter of fact. And um, yep. and you, you know, it's 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 just manageable enough you can stuff it in a bag and sort of carry it with you. And I ended up donating it there, and I think it made it. A friend of mine is sourcing stuff for the Ukrainians. I think it ended up uh, in the Saporizhia City Hall, which, and I hope wow. the Russians didn't capture it because it's in the Kherson region, which the, <laughs> the Russians did eventually seize. But I, I'm, you know, it's funny. Star- Starlink is still charging me for data for that dish. So I hope someone sees it. <laughs> I know, you should, you, you should get to, you know, have a back door to listen in to who's using that, <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that kind of thing. Well, it's interesting because, you know, look, we, again, we, we gave Elon Musk, or he won $885 million to serve 642,000 rural homes across 35 states. And, and by my sort of back of the envelope math, if we're going to serve those exact same people, and I, I have a question of whether we ever will uh, get them served now that we've revoked this infrastructure award, if we're going to get them fiber, which is kind of what this administration wants to get everywhere, um, by my calculation, that's about $3 billion. So we went from getting you know high-speed service almost overnight uh, to 642,000 people for $885 million and kind of in, in the way you can only do in D.C., we may get you there eventually, uh, but if so, it's going to be the neighborhood of $3 billion uh, instead. And look, I, I, I love fiber. It's an amazing technology. It's got almost unlimited capacity, but there's a time value. You know, it can take five, six, seven, eight years to build a fiber line out to your house where, you know, Starlink, as you know, can get there virtually overnight. But it's not just Starlink. We've got these other technologies, too, what we call sort of fixed wireless, where you can go on a cell tower and it's sort of like a mobile service, but it's a direct, um, basically microwave link to your house. And again, you can get you know 100 over 20 speeds. And what we've seen just generally with his administration, with all of this infrastructure spending, is this massive preference for fiber that's hard to sort of explain. I mean, on the one hand, you know, fiber builds involve a lot more union labor, so maybe that's that's a piece of it. There's also this the neutral reason that 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 fiber is a probably the closest thing we have to a future-proof technology. But again, there's a, a time value of telling people, hey, you're going to get this really good thing, but just stay, you know, without internet for, for years and it'll get there. And I just think we need a, a much more sort of tech neutral, balanced approach to to bridging the digital divide. Uh, or we're going to spend a lot of money and people are going to be, you know, be be waiting for a long time for this stuff. You know, it's funny you mentioned the point-to-point microwave tower. So that's the other ISP that's available in the uh, Virginia City Highlands. And in fact, that antenna was bolted to the side of the house. I actually pay for both services um, even though they're kind of expensive, one is a fallback to the other. Cause originally I didn't know how much to trust Starlink. I think I'll probably end up canceling the, the microwave service, but yeah, I mean the fiber thing, it sounds cool. Right. And people living in cities think, Oh, fiber, right. Cause you often get it in many sort of, you know, large multifamily type homes in San Francisco, but fiber is like phenomenally expensive to run out. I mean, I, I remember when I lived, so when I lived in the San Juan islands, right. Which are these islands Northwest of Seattle and it's, you know, somewhat remote. It's not even on the mainland. And th- there was fiber action, Orcas Island on part of it. But my particular spur of like the road that came through, we once priced out how much it would cost. And it was tens of thousands of dollars for six or seven homes. And Starlink wasn't Starlink wasn't even in production yet. So it wasn't an option when I was there. But yeah. obviously, you know, 7x times Starlink would have been way cheaper than all the work required and would have been plenty of bandwidth, right? Like, 
obviously fiber would be faster. And if, you know, if you really are a tech company or you're playing, you know, first person shooter games or something, or you're trading stocks very quickly, then that bandwidth thing makes a difference. But for your average usage, Starlink is perfectly fine. I mean, I get 200 megabit down, 20, 25 up, which is perfectly fine for common usage. Um, yeah. It would have been m- much cheaper to, to do that than run fiber to an island 10 miles off offshore. Yeah, I mean, look, I've spent a lot of time with these, you know, telecom crews. I've been out there, you know, trenching and, and, and splicing fiber and seeing how all this goes. And it's awesome when it gets there. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it, it can be thirty to $50,000 to run a mile of fiber. And that's that's why, you know, we could serve all these people, uh, at least we could have, for $885 million, whereas with fiber, uh, my, my best guess is it's going to be north of $3 billion. And then you obviously got to start taking into uh, account uh, inflation. But it's just interesting because, you know, you look back also to like 5G, which is sort of, again, a separate technology. You got fiber, you got these low Earth orbit satellites like Starlink, you got fixed wireless, and you got sort of 5G, which is obviously this, you know, next generation cellular service. And we made a lot of progress on 5G and US leadership in 5G over the last couple of years. And it feels like we're starting to sort of hit a little bit of a stall speed uh, with 5G in this country. We're not sort of pushing ahead as hard as we were. And some of that, I think, is just, you know, we're at this interesting product cycle point with 5G where, like, it's sort of chicken and egg. We've got the networks largely built out, at least in the urban centers, but there hasn't been, like, the killer 5G app yet. There's, like, not something that you can do um, with a 5G-powered phone that you really couldn't do with 4G, unlike the app economy, right? Like, the app economy is, you know, what made 4G so valuable in this country it's you know only things that a 4g smartphone could do we're sort of waiting for you know the innovators and and and, and maybe you'll be one of them uh, again uh, that can come up with that sort of killer 5g app i mean people talk about ar vr could be it maybe you know metaverse style stuff might be it um as well but i i, I think there's sort of this consumer lag right now on 5g as a technology because we're just they haven't seen the killer app yet So Brendan, sorry, I'm fussing with the button here for some reason. Um, so let, yeah. let's put on let's put on our cynical hats, Brendan, and uh, imagine why it could possibly be that <laughs> the government is not a big fan of Starlink. Could it be plain old DC pork politics, whereby, and again, I don't really claim to understand this world, but where you know cable companies and you know the general fiber industry has you know probably better packs and better lobbying groups than that Elon does. Could it be? I mean, you know, Elon very publicly, you know, he's kind of this spect- he's like this ongoing spectacle now. <laughs> um, and could it be that his um, ambiguity towards sort of like, I guess, consensus democratic politics would have him fall out of favor with the current administration, which I know is, is, is probably reaching and getting a little bit into conspiratorial territory. But I'm curious, what, what could be motivating this beyond, you know, cold, hard reason? Did we did we lose Brendan? Oh, uh, I think I lost you for a second. Oh, there we go. Uh, you know, oh, sorry, maybe it's me. Yeah, no. you know, look, it's, it's hard to sort of eliminate all possibilities that 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 there was some sort of thought process, at least on the White House side, uh, you know, having having to do with this. I mean, obviously, Elon Musk has been very public <laughs> recently with a lot of his uh, political views. Um, and so I can't sort of eliminate that possibility in terms of, you know, FCC staff, you know, they, they don't be they're not sort of cognizant of that type of stuff or, or, or motivated by that stuff. But I do think that just as a general matter, this is not a decision that, you know, from my perspective can be sort of fully explained uh, by the reasoning put forward on the piece of paper. There, again, there is this sort of massive fiber bias. I think that had something to do with it. You know, can I fully eliminate that again, sort of people in the white house were sort of cheered on uh, given some of the politics of this, I can't eliminate that, but, but it is an odd decision. It may in fact come back up to us uh, at the full commission level to deal with this eventually. So the way the FCC works is we have these bureaus uh, that can take the first stab at some of these types of things, and then people can appeal up to the full commission. I hope um, Starlink and Elon appeal up to the full commission, and we'll see what happens uh, at that point. But you know, this is one that you know certainly surprised me and caught me off guard. Oh, I see. So, the, so I see. So the commission again. This is just be me, be being a total DC noob. The commission yeah. actually has a sort of it's not quite a, a juridical process, but it's like some sort of appeals process whereby a decision happens a certain way. And then those with a stake in that's the right. game can actually appeal it. I see. Okay. Yeah, that's right. We have, you know, at the FCC, there's um, a number of commissioners who are authorized for five. We have four right now. 
and then sort of below us in the in the in the bureaucratic structure, we have a number of operating bureaus. So a wireline bureau, a wireless bureau, um, and in, in in some instances, they can take the initial stab at stuff. As I sort of put out my statement, to me, this is um, one that you know exceeded the bounds of the bureau's authority. So again, sort of they looked at this price point of the dish. Uh, it appears in, in, in denying this, but they they weren't given authority by us at the commission to deny an award like this based on, you know, their perspective on um, the price point. So, yeah, there can be appeal to the FCC. And then if, you know, Starlink goes beyond that, if they don't win the appeal to the full commission, then they can go sort of out of the FCC to the to the court system. So that's generally how the process works. And it's interesting because, you know, the award that they're getting isn't from these billions of dollars that Congress has made available for infrastructure. There's this program that the FCC runs that, you know, you all pay into that you don't know about. It's called the Universal Service Fund. And this is about a $9 billion a year program, again, designed to sort of support infrastructure builds in rural areas, designed to provide discounted, you know, telecom services uh, to low-income people. And the way we pay for that $9 billion a year is we add a, what we call a, uh, an assessment, you might feel it as a tax, on your traditional telephone bill. So if you look on your traditional telephone bill, there's a portion of that that we add a 30 percent assessment or tax to. And then we collect that money at the FCC. That creates nine billion dollars. And it was that sort of annual pot of money that that we were going to give Elon or Starlink more directly that eight hundred eighty five million over a 10 year period uh, to, to, to build out service. So it's an interesting sort of little federal program that people don't don't know a lot about, but they do sort of contribute to it uh, every month as long as they have traditional telephone service. Yeah. And how much of this is just like the fact that Elon came out of nowhere, right? And like, from what I understand, the Starlink service is mostly a way to monetize his launch capacity that he's building on the SpaceX side of it. And it turns out that putting stuff into space is a good way to monetize rockets, even though at least Elon's, you know, avowed goal is still to, to colonize Mars. Um <laughs> But and how much of this is him just like doing a total end run on the entire cable industry as has existed for the past 30 years and and, and building that is is that is that some of what's going on? You know, it's interesting. It's, it's possible. I mean, I don't think even even denying this 800 you know million dollar award to, to Starlink, I, I don't imagine is sort of going to be very material at the end of the day to, the, to their ability to, to continue to do business, continue to stay in the launch business. And there were some people that criticized the 800 million dollars because they're like, well, um, they're already launching a satellite. The service is already there. Why do we need to pay him money to connect rural America? Um, and there was some extra value we were getting for the 800. For instance, they have to you know, position their beams a certain way. Maybe they need more earth stations in other places. So um, there was some, some critique of it from, from that perspective as well. But yeah, I mean, I do think, you know, obviously launch capacity and um, it, it's sort of one thing that sort of benefits by keeping the system going. And that launch capacity is used by everyone, right? Like, it's, it's almost, it's not a public good, obviously, but, like, from what I understand, looking at, you know, the rocket heads who, like, follow this stuff of, like, kilogram launch capacity or whatever, like, a huge fraction of it's been made up by SpaceX on the U.S. side. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're seeing just a tremendous amount of launches right now. Um, Low-Earth orbit satellite, uh, low-Earth orbit, sorry, is, is getting a little uh, crowded. In fact, the FCC has a role to play as well on, orbital debris and orbital debris mitigation. We hear from launch providers that are saying, hey guys, it's getting a little tough to get up there and move, maneuver around uh, through all these satellites and get back out safely. And it's a little funny because we're not, you know, I, I joke with people about how, you know, you know, we get involved with orbital debris mitigation and all kinds of obviously uh, complicated issues that go into trying to sort of regulate that area. Um, and I joke and say, well, it's, you know, not rocket science, but like it's literally rocket science. And I frankly express a little bit of concern that like, we aren't rocket science. I'm not at the FCC. And so it's, it's an odd area for the FCC to be a lead regulator. I think it should be much more focused on whether it's, you know, NASA or another organization that does in fact have a, a body of rocket scientists. And so it, it concerns me a little bit, um, you know, do we have the right sort of orbital debris mitigation in place? Because if, you know, something happens up there in low earth orbit, you know, it's a cascading effect. It's a disaster, let alone the fact, obviously, that I think it's now a threat vector from whether it's China or Russia um, that can go up there and sort of muck up low Earth orbit. In fact, you know, China has a, a reputation of just, you know, blowing up their satellites every once in a while. Um, and then it just, you know, it scatters everywhere up there. And that, that's a real problem. 
Yeah, I mean, for if if listeners want like a visceral feeling of what that implies, there's a sadly underrated space movie called Gravity by Iñárritu starring <laughs> Sandra Bullock, which I don't know why it got kind of panned by critics. I actually liked it. I actually enjoyed it as a film. And um, not, I mean, it's not that much of a spoiler because it happens in like the first five minutes. But um, basically, a, a massive storm of of space debris basically knocks out a space station, and then there's this like race to get Sandra Bullock back to the Earth's surface. And yep. And, you know, space debris sounds like, you know, it almost feels like a piece of litter you see blowing in the wind down the street. <laughs> and yet when you realize, like, no, it's this thing coming at you at probably hundreds or thousands of kilometers per hour. That's exactly. like basically like shrapnel being fired at you. And it, it would just wreck literally everything because, of course, these spaceships aren't, you know, there's no actual sh- force shields like there are in Star Wars or Star Trek. And so it would just yep. totally shred any sort of ship. It's, it's shocking to me there actually aren't more collisions, but I guess... And the same reason there aren't that many ship-to-ship collisions on the open ocean, because, like, space is big. And, in fact, there's a third dimension. It's not just a two-dimensional surface. But but even on the ocean, you do have collisions, actually, occasionally. At some yep. point, uh, the odds do run out. So it's surprising to me that it isn't getting more and more crowded. I guess that's – and that's one of the objections. And, again, I don't know how real this is to Elon's system, that it's, like, lots and lots of relatively low-Earth orbit satellites – and you see these things launch. The videos are amazing. It looks like something out of a sci-fi film. That there's this entire rack of little satellites that all peel off like little robots, and they go off in their little direction. Uh, it's kind of it's a it's kind of amazing to watch. Yeah, and that's you know part of it's why I think at its core, this idea that we're expressing skepticism about this system, saying it's risky and nascent. I just don't think it's a good look. In, in addition to not being correct, it's just not a good look for our government right now. I mean. China is looking to sort of launch its own, you know, separate Starlink-like service. In fact, I can't remember the name, but it's basically you know, kind of like an IP theft um, way they tend to do. It's like it's Starbeam or it's, it's, some, it's some sort of knockoff of the Starlink name. And Europe obviously wants to do their own system. And we should be, you know, obviously sort of championing um, sort of space innovation and space leadership. And for us to say, eh, this is sort of a so-so technology, I, I don't know. It's just not, it's, again, it's not right it's, and it's not sort of, a good look for us right now because you know the china is more than happy to try to knock off you know starlink as, as sort of this this um leo and we got other other us-based services as well you know uh, amazon kuiper you know they're trying to get up there as well and so I, I think we should be encouraging and boosting and championing these technologies not sort of you know casting aspersion on it yeah so does does china have anything in remotely comparable to, to starlink yeah, they're trying to. There's, I can't again. I can't remember the name, but it's you know Starbeam or something like that. It's like a total knockoff product uh, right. that they're trying to launch. And again, I think there's there's this you know geopolitical strategic value for the U.S. I mean, you and I did an event together, um, an event. I think it was a, a podcast. I call those events now. Uh, that's how old I'm getting. Uh, it was an event, you know, right after the Cuban protests, yes. um, where you know Cuba uh, shut down terrestrial internet service. And I think Starlink. I think you know we have these high altitude balloons. You know. We need to have as a country this strategic capacity to restore internet connectivity abroad as part of our foreign ca- uh, foreign policy capacity. And, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like, you know, intervention and military intervention. It's like, OK, well, you know, broadband is better than bombs. So maybe you should put <laughs> put some effort uh, into that. And as you and I talked about before, you know, the, the free flow of information over the most modern means of communication is always something that sort of um, – undermines authoritarianism and, and, and leads to sort of democracy and, and you know, obviously, you know, the pamphleteers uh, of the revolutionary. And then we had, you know, Radio Free Europe, uh, which we still have as well. Uh, and, and I think that the modern day version of that is Internet, whether it's, you know, these low Earth orbit um, um, stratospheric balloons. Uh, obviously, Google used to be in that space with Project Loon. And I think there's another entity now that's bought some of that technology once Google has shut that down or Starlink, depending on the geography and the technology, you know, we, we need this type of capacity in, a, in our, in our arsenal. Yeah. I mean, the internet in a box, right. As a concept is, is really fascinating. Again, to go back to my Ukraine experience. I was like in Western Ukraine and in, in um, Lviv and, you know, war torn country, even though the Western part was, was still kind of livable, but you just dangle this thing off like your hotel balcony and you still instantly get 200 megabit down, which is kind of magical. It's like, uh, you know, it's you don't have to be very old to, like, be kind of wowed by that. Um, and, and again, you cite the Cuba example, right? Like, my my one and only trip to Cuba was actually reporting illegally on how the Internet works there. And mm-hmm. it, I, I don't want to, like, review all of that. But, it, it you know, this is before Cubans even had data on their phones, right? And, and once they did have data on their phones, that's more or less what caused the protest thing that we saw um, early last year. 
um, uh, in which, you know, like literally a single Facebook video <laughs> shared across the island. They basically speed ran all of like social media from basically zero to full on on your on your phone type stuff in, you know, in no time. And of course, again, authoritarians can't, can't quite handle with that. I, I, I do think it's interesting not to get too political, but it's interesting that, you know, there was an America that thought, yes, free speech, you know, literally beam the voice of America right into the Eastern <laughs> Bloc uh, was was, you know, an unquestionably good thing. And now I don't know, it seems like we're potentially giving up on freedom of speech, you know, even at home, much less pushing it on people abroad. Um, it's a yeah, it's a challenge. I mean, I've spoken a lot, obviously, on sort of these free speech issues and in, in, in the censorship um, that we've done. I think I can't remember if you and I've talked about this before, but like if, if you step back, it was very much not just, you know, an American value, but almost like a uniquely progressive value for, for decades, this idea of, you know, free speech. In fact, you know, I, I've told the story before, but the, the, the modern day op-ed launched on the pages of the New York Times, you know, of all places now, right. uh, in 1970s, because it was sort of a very progressive thing. This editor of the New York Times, John Oakes, wanted, you know, to see ideas and opinions and perspectives that were divergent, in his words then, um, from those that the New York Times editors would other, otherwise put out. And he said that diversity of opinion is, is the lifeblood of democracy. And you, and you flash forward to today, and it feels like so much of the media, particularly, you know, cable news, and you can, you know, pick your side, right or left. It just, it feels more like we're sheepdogging people towards preferred political narratives rather than, you know, really having sort of a robust, wide open debate of different perspectives. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. One can get very philosophical here, right? Because when you think about things like filter bubbles, like the, the epistemic challenge of, to use a fancy word of like, what is, what is truth, right? And the notion of fact-checking, I don't know, if you pull back far enough, right? I think one of the challenges is that historically, every society has its narratives, right? And those narratives tend to line up somewhat vaguely with reality, although not always. And those narratives tend to follow the sort of contours of both political borders and linguistic borders. As someone who was raised at kind of the weird Venn diagram intersection of like two different cultural and linguistic worlds, i.e. Miami, that's kind of at the intersection of like the sort of North American Anglo-Protestant world and then like the sort of South American Latin Catholic world, right? Those are like two different cultures kind of interacting. And it was interesting to be kind of bicultural and kind of inhabit both. But I could see how they had, you know, if, if, you, if you read an American versus a Cuban or a Spanish book on the Spanish-American War, you get a very different narrative out of yep. either of, of those sets of stories. And again, and that's fine, right? Like every, everyone lives in a book in some sort of some level or, you know, you read an English or a French version of like Napoleon's biography, right? Or the French Revolution, right? And, and you're going to get not completely dissimilar stories, like again, all of it's not constructed, but, you, but you're definitely going to get a different narrative out of it. And it seems like one of the challenges again, with increasing globalization and internationalism and universalism is that if you, if you really do have like the device that's in my hand right now, if that is, is really a portal into anyone like a, across the world, that also raises, a lot. anyhow, this is like a bigger topic than I think the topic of this conversation, but there are downsides to that, that, you know, I mean, obviously in the authoritarian case of Castro, like it's obvious, right? There's there's a dumb narrative there that is, you know, almost 100% false, and it's obviously used in the service, you know, in the service of a tyranny, and so it's hard to defend, you know, their narrative as being well just as good as ours. But yeah. you know, but it is the case that you know, even in cases where you don't have the pathology of like a communist police state, you know, it, it's jarring to constantly have to like establish moral foundations and defend your moral foundations like every day on Twitter. It's like it's like exhausting. Like I've given up on it. Like I don't even try to play <laughs> part of the culture war anymore. And and again, it's not. I don't know. And then you know. The, the reaction of some people is like, that's it. It's time for like a split between the moral foundations and truths that are over here and the moral foundations and truths that are over here. Um, and, you know, a, a few months ago, um, I, I'm sure you follow him. I had Balaji on. He just wrote a book mm -hmm. called The Network State. And, you know, his idea there, he's obviously very into crypto and he's very he's very forward looking right and far into the future. And his vision of the future is like, well, we're not going to have these traditional nation states that encompass various viewpoints, but come to some overarching Walter Cronkite-like narrative just as a way to get by, you're going to actually have that fragment and, and break into like network states in which you do agree on sort of moral and social foundations. And you do tend to live in these sort of archipelagos of common belief or common value and common, common economic ties, which sounds crazy, I know, but it, you know, is already kind of the truth, right? If you talk to a lot of like mm -hmm. tech elite 
types, and I guess to some degree I am that, right? They, they go from the same three or four neighborhoods in San Francisco to the same three or four neighborhoods in New York, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. <laughs> and but so, you, but, but yeah. you vary it up with detours in Nevada, so, you know. Right, no, no, well, and in fact, in my review, in fact, exactly that. In my review in Tablet and also on, on the pull request of Balaji's book, I'm like, well, there are exceptions. <laughs> Occasionally, <laughs> I, I drive over the Sierra into Reno and Virginia City, and it does feel like going into a different country, to be honest. Um, and, you know, it's a very different world out there. But I, I think that's relatively uncommon. Not that many people actually do that. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, look, I, I, as we talked before, my wife is from Reno, Nevada. So I spent a couple of weeks there in the summer. And even in this job, you know, I try to spend as much time outside of Washington, D.C. as possible. But it's just it's hard to explain. But but like, obviously, D.C. is very similar to Silicon Valley in, in this you know bubble of conversation. You get outside of it. It's just there's different conversations or different things that people sort of value and care about. And I think you have to try to sort of, you know, vary sort of the, the environments you're in. But, you know, you talked, one of the things you, you talked about there too that um, sort of jogged my memory is, you know, there's some concern recently too about um, foreign influence campaigns through America's sort of radio and broadcast and even sort of unregulated content. I think there was a Wall Street Journal piece, I think within the last couple of days, basically looking at all of these, CCP aligned or affiliated entities that are, um, you know, using various U.S. based outlets. And it's sort of a challenge, you know, for me. I mean, obviously, I don't I don't um, think there's there's many people that sort of out China hawk me on a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff. And, and at the same time, it's that conflict that we have in this country of sort of, you know, um, diversity of views and, you know, everyone ha- gets to have a voice. But but one way that I sort of square that circle of the FCC, at least in terms of, you know, how do you square your, your, your perspective for more speech and diversity of views with potentially cracking down um, on some of these sort of foreign owned entities that are trying to use FCC license to, to disseminate sort of CCP propaganda. And not only there's sort of a line that I draw, sometimes it blurs a little bit, but between sort of conduct and content, which is, you know, where your conduct is such that you have to register as a foreign agent um, or your conduct is such that, you know, you're in trouble with, you know, national security agencies. And I think that's sort of the reason why we then at the FCC could step in. But purely a content-based approach for the FCC is a very uh, slippery slope, although we, we haven't really confronted it um, that much. But but I think some of that Wall Street Journal story and other sort of knock-on effects could be there. Because, look, I think it, 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 it's no doubt in my mind that, you know, China is engaged in this foreign influence campaign. And I've we can get into it or not, but, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the last – month or so talking about TikTok and some of the, the ways in which, um, you know, the content in there, although from my perspective, my focus there has been more on data flows back into China as opposed to the, the foreign influence uh, uh, sort of part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. TikTok is a particularly egregious example. There's definitely a lot of people in DC that think that we should just ban TikTok in the United States and that's the end of it. Um, uh, I, I wouldn't presume to ask you for your stance on that, but it, it does seem like you're concerned at least with uh, foreign ownership or influence over yeah. social media popular in the U.S. Well, I do. I do think we should be m- much more aggressive on, on TikTok. In fact, I wrote a letter to uh, Apple and Google a couple weeks ago saying that I think that they should kick TikTok out of the App Store. And the basis for that is, you know, in my view, I think it is a a national con- a security uh, threat. Um, not you know the videos itself. A lot of people say, well, what's the big deal? It's just you know you upload you know funny videos and funny memes. And I, I say, well, that's just a the sheep's clothing at the end of the day, underneath of that, you know, they're pulling all sorts of data, you know, according to their disclosures, it's everything from, you know, potentially, you know, biometrics like face prints and voice prints, you know, geolocation information, search and browsing history, keystroke patterns. And for years, you know, they told regulators and lawmakers in DC, basically, don't worry, this is all stored in the US. And well, turns out, um, you know, through some leaked internal audios, uh, that a reporter got of TikTok, they say, quote, everything is seen back in China. And so I wrote to Google and Apple and I said, look, I basically implicitly, I understand that you don't want to make this national security determination, but you are an expert on your own app store policies. And traditionally, if an app store or app um, is, is sort of using data for purposes that aren't disclosed, um, there's a history of these app stores kicking apps out of the, the stores for that reason, or if a I think there was an instance where an app had data hitting a server in China that wasn't disclosed and they booted them. And so my view to them was that they should um, enforce their app store policy based on these new disclosures about what I view as surreptitious data flows back into China. Um, and they should sort of kick, kick TikTok out of the app store from there. They haven't agreed with me yet, but, you know, I'm going I'm to continue to sort of raise those concerns. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny. I was working at an uh, at a mobile attribution company um, when India basically banned TikTok, and so you know we had some view into internal metrics of what the Indian mobile marketplace was using, and it was interesting to just watch TikTok usage just fall off a cliff one day. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, oh, well, you, you know, it's, yeah. and some people say, well, you know, why do you care so much about TikTok and not about sort of other apps and all the data that they're sort of pulling? I do. I I, I have concerns about the data you know, that Silicon Valley based apps are, are pulling. But at the end of the day, you know, those are entities in Silicon Valley that, you know, have profit motive. We have an independent judiciary. You know, there are sort of laws you have to follow. So while I do think that we should have broader privacy protections for all apps in this country, you know, I'm uniquely concerned when the data is now being accessed from inside of China as TikTok has now admitted because, you know, Katie bar the door at that point, there's, you know, zero protection on that data. And I, I mean, look, you know, Christopher Ray just went, uh, and stood next to his MI5 counterpart and said that, you know, from his perspective, China is the greatest long-term threat to the U.S. and they'll use every tool at their disposal, his words. And from my perspective, well, you know, one of those tools is going to be the amount of data that they're they're pulling off of millions and millions of Americans through this, this TikTok app. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the data side of things, you know, I, obviously I come from the ad side of it. So to me, like the, the Cajunists run the data is kind of less of a concern because I, I mean, short of obviously people like diplomatic staff and politicians and whatnot, for your average user, you know, the data that a social media app gets is not even terribly interesting from the commercial point of view, much less the <laughs> national security point of view. But, um, but you know, it's I, I, at, a, at a higher level, right, it's like a more open question of, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like the um, the question about Popper's question about the tolerance of intolerance, right? When, when you have an autocratic state that obviously does not believe in the free flow information very overtly, do you respond to that with, you know, gamesmanship in which like okay well you want to fracture the internet let's fracture the internet you don't get you don't get access to our internet or do you respond in this sort of ideological way with more and more openness and the thought that your openness will and you know this is kind of like the the moral the moral conundrums that uh, you know google and facebook had to face when they could have you know struck the devil's bargain with china and had some operating room there if they sort of colluded or whatever, collaborated, yeah. if you want to use the play term with a Chinese government. That, that, that's really the trade-off, right? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I, I tend to think that, you know, reciprocity is a great, you know, starting point for, uh, for, for, for these types of international relation questions. And obviously TikTok itself uh, as an app is not allowed to operate inside of China. They have a, a Doyon or however you, you pronounce it is sort of the, the, the version of it there. And that's concerning, you know, when, when they have an app that operates here and, and not there. And, you know, again, this sort of decades old view of sort of, you know, you know, basically you look at Hong Kong, right? And you had, you know, um, you know, Margaret, Margaret Thatcher, uh, this whole idea that there'd be, you know, 50 years of freedom and that, you know, Hong Kong was basically too big to fail. And that the economic prosperity of Hong Kong would feed back into mainland China and sort of have a liberalizing effect. I mean, that just has proven not to be the case as we've seen with the, the crackdown uh in, in hong kong and so I, I i don't know i think when you're dealing with authoritarianism the idea that you know we're gonna give them economic liberty and levi's jeans uh they're gonna move our way that just hasn't been our you know reality the last you know decade or so right i mean this is a this is a bigger question right but <laughs> but you know it, somehow historically when the united states has tried to expand freedom right and by, by which we mean to be blunt impose liberalism I mean, it often has worked, right? I mean, Western Europe and Eastern Europe are a lot more peaceful and democratic than they were in the past. So is yeah. Latin America, though, through a lot of ups and downs. Uh, you know, Japan is still a democracy. So is South Korea. I mean, there's been a number of successes, right? There's a lot of people, uh, both on the right and left, who are very skeptical of U.S. intervention abroad and our ability to actually influence politics. Um, but and certainly recently, if you look at the Middle East, uh, there's been a number of, fa- of failures. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a question of are we crusaders for liberalism? And, you know, a higher level question is liberalism actually as universalist as it claims that it is, right? The thought that everyone can actually live in a Jeffersonian democracy, right? That's been, Mm -hmm. that's kind of one of these ideological assumptions that has either been proved out or or very much not proved out in certain scenarios. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, I'm not sort of a believer in the the sort of uh, uh, inevitable sort of American civil war in in breaking up the country. But I do think, you know, that, 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 I do think we are headed towards a broader decoupling with China at this point. And I do think it's sort of, you know, largely uh, inevitable at this point. And, you know, my, my position is I would encourage, you know, all of these companies and businesses to, to come up with a plan now um, to look at sort of moving supply chains out and, and sort of looking, you know, 
more broadly become independent of uh, dependence purely uh, on China at this point. Yeah, and this gets into a lot of you know questions about you know how much do we make our economy independent of China? And I mean, the latest news I saw was that Apple was trying to make some iPhones in India to not be as dependent on the Chinese supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. One thing, Brendan, I have to say, I, I do see a number of callers, which is interesting because often even very high profile guests will not have callers for some reason. I don't know if people are intimidated or they just have questions. <laughs> yeah, we have two questions. So if, if you don't mind, yeah. I, might, I, might take some, I might take some calls. Yeah, please. Um, sure. So let me, Sheila Dean, you are, you are on the air. Oh, I'm glad to be here talking to you, Antonio. This is the first time I've, I've actually listened in on your program, and, and it's a topic I'm I'm actually really engaged with. Like I'm I'm really feeling the topic, and and your host seems to be very knowledgeable about what's going on um, with the FCC and government. I have lots, uh, but I'll just try to Look, keep my as long, questions as long as limited. Being, as long as I'm not being fact check, I do sound very knowledgeable. But when the fact check comes in, that's that's when the problems arise. I'm probably not going to fact check you because <laughs> I just want to get a, a general aptitude about certain certain things. Um, uh, the first thing I, I wanted to address is the Huawei issue and the semiconductor chip issue and the, and this people law, which, according to China, it, it's their privacy law, but what it is is it's a data protection law. And they claim that anything using their software, maybe you're aware of this law, the PIPL law, uh, anything using their software anything using their their chips anything using their uh, proprietary anything that is their data the data goes to China and they feel the corporations feel like they they need to comply with that law so there's there may be some hoovering there mm. yeah for sure I mean look there's that touches on a lot of issues I mean you know forced IP transfer forced mm-hmm. data data transfer and when it comes to Huawei in particular you know we took steps a couple years ago to it was it was covered as like broadly getting Huawei gear out of our network and in the main it was what we technically did was we said no more Huawei gear can benefit from this as we talked about before federal universal service program and you know the lion's share of all this Huawei gear was in very rural and remote parts of the country and was only there because it was funded through this federal USF program so long story short we cut that funding off and then said it's time to rip and replace uh, all that Huawei gear, although we sort of have run out of money <laughs> to complete that rip and replace. And we're trying to get some more. Huh. But but we've also left the door open, sort of a, uh, a back door, so to speak, uh, that said if you use private dollars to buy that exact same Huawei gear, you can buy it and put it in the exact same port in the network, which I call the Huawei loophole. And Congress actually gave us some more authority recently. And we were in the Why? process of a, of, a, of a rulemaking to close that loophole down. Oh, good. Uh, that's and, that's and really sure good. That yeah, that this gear comes out no matter what. Because I was up in uh, Great Falls, Montana, which is, you know, far northern part of Montana. There's nothing up there, uh, except that's where we have all of our ICBM missile silos. And they're spread all across big sky country. It's nothing but wheat fields yeah. and, you know, rural remote roads. Except the cell towers there are all running, you know, high-powered yeah. Huawei equipment, um, including in some cases, you know, camera gear. That, that Yeah, surveillance. Works. I was just going to yeah. mention so that yeah. some of the camera surveillance is, is Huawei. Yeah, yeah, it's more high-power cameras than what you need to, like, keep an eye on the random cow or a wheat field. And so I think, you know, we've taken the right actions. We're working towards getting that out, but we got to sort of, you know, go all the way there. Okay. And and what about Taiwan's um, semiconductor industry? Uh, do, you, do you have reach into that, that field? Because, you know, there is some monopolistic stuff. And do you cross over and ever deal with the SEC? Um, when it comes to some of these these monopoly issues, you know, I haven't been as involved in the chipset side. Although I will say that I've been in, in increasingly regular touch with the FCC counterpart uh, in Taiwan called the NCC and some of the commissioners there. And, and um, yeah, I am interested in, in, in the chip manufacturing that's, that's taking place uh, there, making sure we have competition and, and diversity in that supply chain. Because, you know, they're using a lot of wireless, you know, wireless charging ports and, and some of these things give off a lot of they, – they don't just give off energy. They give a lot of the data. Um, and so if Taiwan – is it Taiwan's in a tenuous place, 
but I'm not sure if China can really reach for their data or if they're compliant with the people law. So I'm I'm just I'm kind of asking you. I'm gonna look on your paper because <laughs> yeah, you're the guy yeah. that deals with this. Right, um, right. Well, it's you funny know, you know, too because even with TikTok, I was meeting with some of their officials recently, and they keep saying this position that well. U.S. user data is stored in the U.S. It's accessed a little bit from inside China, but it's not stored there. And I was asking them, I was like, well, how is someone accessing non-public, sensitive U.S. user data from inside China, but like, there's, it's not stored at all for any moment of time while it's being accessed? And they were like, well, yeah, I guess we're not entirely sure about that. I'm like, well, that's, uh, that's kind of that's kind of a problem. Yeah, I think it is. So, so I guess we're we're there. I mean, at what point do you reach for the national security people to say, okay, can we get an assessment and do a gap analysis? Yeah, I mean, look, there's three different components of the federal government that it's looking at um, TikTok right now. The uh, Treasury just TikTok are, is everything banked on TikTok, or are we going to start looking at semiconductor? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and, what and we're talking at, about. Right, right, and looking at foreign investment in issues like that. So. Treasury has this process called CFIUS. It's this Committee on Foreign oh, yeah. Investment. Um, they're looking at a lot of these issues. Commerce Department is looking at a lot of this. And Senator uh, Mark Warner and Marco Rubio asked the uh, Federal Trade Commission, a sister agency of ours, to take a look at the, the TikTok issue as well. So there's a lot of different components of the federal government that are looking at this. I would just think that we need to sort of get going and make a final decision here because we shouldn't just be half pregnant when it comes to national security threats like this. We oh, should no. either, either say, no problem, you know, move on use these things freely or yeah there's a problem and we need to take action okay i just wanted to quickly mention that the ftc is taking in public input on um data security right now so i can i can definitely kind of do more research in in that area but i, I think for data surveillance which is also a, a tradable object with the BRICS nations that's brazil russia india and china india and china do most of the data commerce like making making saying data as a currency exchange and I have concerns that you know when it can't be just directly hoovered out of your computer using an FCC port then they'll find the other way which is basically taking the spreadsheet and laundering it through um, through the BRICS channels and so that's another monopoly issue um, do you have anything to say towards maybe a recommendation for either the SEC on this or the FTC? Like, which fork do you take when it comes a data security issue um, for, you know, the brick stuff? Is that, yeah, is that too? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I haven't drilled down as much on that issue as to give you some a good a good answer on that one. Okay. I mean, I just I just figured I'd try because. The SEC has has some regulatory reach for for monopoly and price yeah. fixing, and when it gets down to China, will buy the information if they can't steal it. That's I, that's my my main concern. And, yep. and now I'll get out of your way. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Okay, well, thank you for coming up. We we do have a few more callers. Let me invite up um, Jenny Hatch, who's the next caller. Think of the I think if the government was to take away TikTok with our young people, that may kick off the long-awaited civil war. <laughs> <laughs> well, people, people do love it. It's funny because you know, you talk about like Huawei and ZTE being a security threat, and people are like, "Okay, you know, I buy that." And, and you talk about TikTok, and obviously, people love TikTok. At least some people do uh, a lot more than people love uh, Huawei or ZTE. But I still think you know we got to take action. Yeah, and I'm excited about the potential for Starlink. I have uh, several family members, actually, who are from Ukraine, and they said that really changed everything once it got up and running and they were able to be in communication from the U.S. with loved yeah. ones in Ukraine. So I'm excited about that. But I did read an article earlier this week that talked about how SpaceX was at a crossroads, and maybe you guys covered it earlier in the show when I wasn't listening, but um, can you talk any more about that? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what the article was exactly, but, you know, it is, it's interesting, you know, you've got um, at least some components here of, of the FCC at the bureau level sort of casting doubt on the future of the technology or saying that it's not quite up to snuff yet or it's experimental. I think they looked at sort of the last quarter of speed test data for Starlink and it, it showed it sort of declining slightly. But the reality is, you know, they're launching 
you know, satellites all the time. And as they sort of bring more and more capacity online, uh, I'm, you know, I'm confident you're going to see that number come back up. In fact, you know, year over year, uh, the, the speeds for Starlink are up uh, significantly. So I'm not sure the exact sort of crossroad issue that they sort of teed up in that article, but, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, confident, not just about Starlink, but I think just there's a lot of other low Earth orbit satellites that are going up. And I, and I think it's, it's an important piece of our arsenal in terms of different technologies that can be the right tool for the right type of scenario for, for bridging the digital divide. Yeah, well, thanks for letting me participate. Sure, yep. no, thanks for thanks for coming up. We have one more caller. I don't have a name, but it is an, and it is an, an engineer and a sloganeer per the profile. <laughs> Welcome. Oh, did we lose them? We might've lost them. Um, Okay, well, um, those were all very good questions. Oh, yeah, they're gone. Oh, wait, no, they're there. Hold on, let's see what's going on. Hey, hello, caller, are you there? Nope, okay, I think it was a ghost. It was a ghost user. Uh, well, <laughs> thank you, Brendan, for your time. It's been it's enlightening as always. Um, you know, it's funny how, how frank and uh, unfettered, unfettered, <laughs> to use uh, a timely phrase, you are, I, you know, I'm... I'm just, it's, it's, it's amazing to me that you, you still have gainful employment. In our, in our yeah, I do. Friends. I, yeah, I don't, I don't like fettered conversations. The good news is, you know, at the FCC, we're independent. So we're independent from the administration. Uh, we, we serve a term of years, uh, which are usually five-year terms. Uh, and, and unless you get impeached, uh, you can't lose your job. So I, I try to do this job differently. I try to sort of, you know, speak my mind. Um, and, and I think it's just, it's, it's much more interesting than, you know, doing a typical DC thing where you just sort of speak in various uh, Rorschachian style uh, phrases. So I try to have some fun with it. Right. Or you do a, a policy paper in some journal that nobody reads. That's, that's the other <laughs> DC thing to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's called, you know, liberal current affairs or some convolution of liberal American affairs and like, just like four or five buzzwords, just put it strung together. And, yep. um, and, and they're always put out by some think tank. And of course, everyone in DC knows exactly what little sub millimeter wide part of the political spectrum that corresponds to. And <laughs> on and on and on. Um, exactly. I keep on waiting for uh, Lincoln Network to give me like a little dictionary just so I can translate these various journals and people's. Yep. Um, I don't have, I don't understand half of what they talk about. In any case, yep. uh, you, however, Brendan, do make uh, you know FCC and, and, and comms very, very uh, understandable to the uh, to the common man. So thanks again for for serving in government. I'm sure there's a lot of better things you could probably be doing with your time, and probably a lot more <laughs> remunerative things that you could be doing with your time. Um, oh, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Brendan. Um, yeah. As, as usual, I, this is not your first time on the show, although no, the last time you were on Colin as well. Um, but yeah, this will get streamed out as a regular podcast on Apple and everything else, so it'll become shareable. And um, I'll I'll be editing and posting it shortly. Um, as a as a plug for what's coming up next, I think I think it's this Friday or maybe it's next week. We have uh, Marshall Kozlov, who uh, also from the Lincoln Network. Um, but, um, he has kind of his own media thing, the, uh, and, and pod we're actually doing like a mutual podcast. I'm appearing on his podcast and he's appearing on mine at the same time. We'll see how we make the, uh, the audio work, but in any case, uh, thanks again, everyone for tuning in. I know it's kind of an odd time with, um, zero, uh, planning, but I think it, it was a, a great show as usual. And, uh, thanks again, Brendan, for, uh, for joining pull request. Thanks. Appreciate it. Good to join you. See ya.